Previously on Season 5 of Breakdown. Hello, this is a collect call from... Tex McIver. An inmate at... Fulton County Jail. Who will stand for the little girl who was murdered and all alone. Who will stand for the little girl who achieved much success. Who will stand for Diane McGiver? She knew betrayal, hurt, and pain. He was just coveting her money again and again. Who will stand for Diane MacGyver? A great woman she tried to be. Who will stand for truth and justice as she cries out? Who will stand for me? Maybe they argued in private, maybe, but there's no evidence of that either. Maybe he had another woman in his life, and we heard about all the speculation, but that's maybe again. That's speculation. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Pay no attention to the proof of accident. Rely on our red herrings to reach your decision. That's what the state's case has been in this case. Nothing more than the maybes. On count one, murder. We find the defendant not guilty. On count two, felony murder. We find the defendant guilty of felony murder. On count three, aggravated assault. We find the defendant guilty. Welcome back to Breakdown, the podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that investigates Georgia's most important cases. I'm AJC legal affairs reporter Bill Rankin. We're back once again with a special episode, this time from Season 5, the Tex McIver case. Last week, I got this message from Shane Backler, our wonderful sound engineer. Bill, if I ever get convicted of murder, please do a breakdown season on me. Shane is not the murderous type. But he can do the math. And loyal listeners of Breakdown, I can't thank you enough for that, can do the math too. We're now in our ninth season, the Trump Grand Jury. Of the previous eight seasons, four murder cases had their appeals work their way through the system. And all four of them have been overturned because of, yes, breakdowns in the criminal justice system. First, there was Justin Chapman from season one. Then, Devanya Inman from season four. More recently, there was Justin Ross Harris from Season 2. Now, Tex McIver from Season 5. All had their murder convictions thrown out. It's pretty remarkable. And that is what this episode will be about. How the Atlanta lawyer, convicted of murdering his wife, will soon be getting out of prison. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements. 
are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Let's go back in the breakdown time machine. It's September 25th, 2016. Tex and Diane McIver have spent the weekend at their 84-acre ranch about 80 miles outside of Atlanta. They head home on Sunday with Diane's best friend, Danny Joe Carter, driving the Ford Expedition. Diane is in the front passenger seat. Tex is behind her in the back seat. When they enter the city, Danny Joe gets off the downtown connector at Edgewood Avenue. Just as they turn to go under the I-75, I-85 overpass, Tex sees homeless people. He later says he thought they had come upon a Black Lives Matter protest. Tex started saying, girls, I wish you hadn't gotten off here. This is a bad idea. This is a bad area. You should have just stayed on 85. This is Danny Joe from the witness stand. Tex asked Diane, he said, darling, will you, you hand me my gun? He said, darling, hand me my gun. And did she do it? Yes. Diane said, um, when he said, darling, hand me my gun, Diane said, Tex, I don't even know where your gun is. And he said, it's in the console. And she opened the console, and I looked down, and I didn't see it. He said, it's in the plastic bag. The 38 caliber revolver is in a plastic Publix shopping bag. They drive up Edgewood without incident and take a right on Piedmont Avenue. This will take Tex and Diane to their home in Buckhead. Tex keeps the revolver. He does not return it to the center console. They drive alongside Piedmont Park. At one point, Diane tells Tex, don't fall asleep so you'll be able to sleep tonight. I had both hands on the steering wheel because it's a big vehicle. And I was watching the light, and I hear click, click, click. And I looked at Diane and asked her what she was doing. She said, I'm just making sure the door's locked. And she said, there, like it's locked. I think that's the last thing that she said. Before? I heard a big boom, and I didn't, I didn't know what it was. I thought there was an explosion somewhere. And my, but my head turned to the right, and I looked out the window and wondered where there was an explosion or if somebody behind us was getting ready to hit us or something had happened behind us. I did not realize that, that it was a gunshot right away. How did it sound? It was loud. And so can you tell the jurors what happened next? Diane turned around. Like, she turned around this way. She flung around and she says, Tex, what did you do? He said, the gun discharged. Then Diane realizes what happened to her. The gun had fired and the bullet passed through her seat into her back. I could see out of the side of my eye, um, the way I can see her sitting here, and she leaned forward and started doing like this and kind of leaned she said, Tex, you shot me. Did he say anything? No. For 
less than a second. I thought it was a joke, and then I realized it wasn't. And then I knew that I had to, to get to the nearest emergency room. She was breathing really hard, kind of like panicky. What was Tex doing? He leaned forward and was holding her head with both hands and was saying, Diane, Diane. Tex doesn't call 911. Instead, he tells Danny Joe to take Diane to Emory University Hospital. She puts on her flashers and drives there as fast as she can. Along the way, she doesn't like what she's hearing. She started making these noises that I've never heard before, and I thought she was dying. They were horrible noises. They drive up to the hospital. Diane is rushed into the emergency room. When the staff ask what happened, Diane says, it was an accident. But when the attending physician asks her if she wants to see her husband before being put under, Diane says no. She dies during surgery. What Tex does in the ensuing hours is baffling and suspicious. Tex instructs Danny Joe to tell people at the hospital that she came there because she was a family friend. She says, Tex, I just drove you into the emergency room. And then did he say something in response to that? He looked at me and he says, well, they don't know that. That took my breath away. I said, I can't lie. He said, oh, I'm not asking you to do that. That really took me aback. A nurse would also testify that when she passed Tex in the hallway, she heard him saying he was cleaning his gun in a bathroom when he shot Diane. Tex was saying inexplicable things, and he wasn't finished. He sits down for an interview with the AJC, although his lawyer tells Tex, don't talk about any specifics of the shooting. It was a tragic accident, experienced devastation that I'm going to have the rest of my life. You know, not only have you lost your, your life partner, but you're the reason that she's lost. It's just the biggest double whammy you can imagine. In December 2016, Atlanta police charged Tex with involuntary manslaughter and reckless conduct. This suggests they either believed his claim that he didn't intend to pull the trigger or, at the very least, couldn't prove otherwise. But then, a Fulton County grand jury raises the stakes. It indicts Tex for malice murder. The case finally goes to trial in March 2018. By now, Tex is represented by defense attorneys Bruce Harvey, Don Samuel, and Amanda Clark Palmer. Of course, you may remember the lead prosecutor, Clint. I go to trial. Rucker. You'll remember we picked up on that during season five when Rucker said this during a pretrial hearing. On murder cases, that's not what I do. I go to trial on cases. And I fully expect to go to trial on this one. And he did on this one. The trial takes the better part of seven weeks. The state hammers on the McIvers' finances. Tex was a partner at a large Atlanta law firm. Diane was wealthy and a shrewd business owner. They kept their business interests and income separate. Before their marriage in 2005, Diane loaned Tex $750,000. In 2011, Diane loaned Tex another $350,000 through a note secured by the ranch property. At trial, there is testimony about Diane drawing up a new will, a second will, 
which would be powerful evidence of motive for Tex to kill Diane, but no second will is entered into evidence because the state could not find it or even verify that one existed. I have to recount one of the strangest things I've ever seen during a trial. It happens when Georgia Bureau of Investigation Firearms expert Zach Weitzel is called to the stand. He is there to rebut the defense's arguments that the fatal shot was accidental. He testifies that pulling the trigger on the 38 caliber revolver takes two and a quarter pounds of pressure when the hammer is cocked, or 12 and a quarter pounds of pressure when it's uncocked. This is what happens when he shows the jury how the gun works. So if you were to pull the trigger, but then release the trigger, and I'll put my finger here so that you, I could feel it if it went through, it doesn't touch because you notice the trigger. Weitzel says, oops, it's faint, but he says it. So yes, he accidentally pulls the trigger, just like Tex said he did. And he's a witness for the prosecution. It was quite a moment. You never, ever know what you're going to see at a trial. The jury deliberates for five days, at one point telling Judge Robert McBurney they're deadlocked. So McBurney gives them what's called a dynamite charge, an instruction for them to keep trying. And it works. The jury reaches a verdict. Except it doesn't make any sense. They acquit Tex of malice murder, in effect saying he did not intentionally kill Diane. But they convict him of felony murder with the underlying felony being aggravated assault that he intentionally shot Diane. So on the one hand, he didn't mean to kill his wife. On the other, he meant to kill his wife. The jury also convicts him of influencing a witness for what he said to Danny Joe at the hospital. We later learn the verdict is a compromise. At least three jurors insisted on malice murder while a shifting majority wanted felony involuntary manslaughter that Texas' handling of the gun was so reckless it caused Diane's death. Felony murder is no compromise from malice murder. They both carry the same sentence, life in prison with no chance for parole until after you served 30 years behind bars. And in interviews after the trial, some jurors said they weren't happy about that, and they weren't aware that was even a possibility. At his sentencing hearing, Tex gives a rambling statement that goes on and on and on. He thanks his prison pen pals. He reads a note he'd received from a woman in Ireland. He talks about an Australian jockey and his favorite horse. Tex even says he misses going to Chick-fil-A. Finally, he turns his attention to Diane. The luckiest day of my life is when Diane showed me. And in doing so, we started a relationship that was, uh, can only be described as amazing. We loved each other like small children. We loved each other like small children, he said. After text finishes, McBurney makes an observation. Um, what you thought was important for me to hear, and I guess your audience to hear, um, I didn't ever hear you say you're sorry for what you did. To me, that silence speaks volumes. Tex's final words reinforce a negative that has enshrouded Tex. Tone deaf, incoherent, incriminating. In July 2021, McBurney denies Tex's motion for a new trial, setting up his appeal to the Georgia Supreme Court. 
It's argued this past January. The main thrust of the appeal is Judge McBurney's refusal to give the jury the chance to consider a misdemeanor involuntary manslaughter charge, that Tex was criminally negligent when he held the gun in his lap before he fired the fatal shot. Arguing for Tex is attorney Don Samuel. He gets to the point right away. Given the overwhelming evidence, in essence, that this was an accident, um, the defense requested that the, tr- that the uh, court charge the jury on involuntary manslaughter misdemeanor grade. Given the overwhelming evidence at trial, um, that at most this was criminal negligence in holding a gun um, that was loaded um, with no operable safety in his lap while he dozed off, uh, the defense requested this instruction. Another way to say it, in legal parlance, is that Tex was engaged in the commission of a lawful act performed in an unlawful manner. In other words, sitting in the back of a car with a gun in your hand and falling asleep can be lawful. Pulling the trigger and shooting someone is unlawful. Here's an exchange between Samuel and Chief Justice David Namius. What? How do you define the lawful act? The, the lawful act is, as we've said in our brief and as we argued in the low court, you can you can have a gun. You can have a gun that's loaded. Um, we don't know that his finger was on the trigger while he was falling asleep in the car. Is there, any way, is there any way for the gun to go off without your finger being on the trigger? Ultimately, his finger did have to be on the trigger. But we are drawing a distinction between the act and the matter. And, we, and as he fell asleep, there's no evidence that his finger was on the trigger at that point. Um, and then his wife in the front seat, and the evidence is uncontradicted, you know, yells back at him, wake up, wake up, don't sleep, you know, as we're approaching our house here, they're driving up Piedmont, and she yells at him, and then suddenly the gun goes off. Just to let you know, the maximum punishment for misdemeanor involuntary manslaughter is one year behind bars. Judge McBurney did give the jury an option of convicting MacGyver of felony involuntary manslaughter, Under that, jurors would have had to find MacGyver was engaged in reckless conduct, which has a higher degree of culpability than criminal negligence. And felony involuntary manslaughter carries a prison sentence of up to 10 years. With MacGyver being 75 at the time of the trial, the defense thought that would have been the same as a death sentence. Here's Samuel. But again, we argued against it. We we argued against reckless because the defendant is is in his 70s. I mean, we had a strategic reason. He's in his 70s and reckless conduct would have been a 10-year sentence. So we had, if we had been given involuntary misdemeanor, we would have argued it because we could have, we could have survived that, our client could have survived that kind of disposition. Ruth Pollock argues for the state. She says there is no merit in Samuel's argument. Your Honor, in this case, because there was no evidence at all that would have supported that requested charge, because there was no evidence of a lawful act performed in an unlawful manner, uh, the trial court correctly did not um, give the charge. But it becomes clear real quick, some justices may disagree. Chief Justice David Namius weighs in. Is it a lawful act to possess a gun, to hold the gun on your lap, in a moving car and fall asleep? Is that a lawful act? Arguably, yes. Certainly having a gun in your possession in a moving car um, where the person holding the gun is not a felon, um, that possession of the gun is a lawful act. 
Um, it's heavily fact dependent on whether the act of holding the gun in a moving vehicle while falling asleep and having the gun pointed towards the seat containing your wife, um, I would argue that that is not an unlawful act. That certainly fulfills the definition of reckless conduct, uh, as the trial court found. Namius won't let it go. What is your answer to, is it a criminally negligent act, a reckless conduct that the defendant could have been arrested for without a shooting? If he's sitting in the backseat asleep with this gun on his lap and his hand with his finger on the trigger um, guard in a position where if he was startled, he might, you know, end up pulling the trigger. Your Honor, that perhaps might constitute reckless conduct in this case because shooting occurred. Well, but but it can't work that way. I mean, we've been careful to, in defining criminal negligence, for example, we had a case where a housekeeper, you know, allowed a child to wander away and with no warning and the child ended up drowning. And the state tried to argue that leaving a child alone for even a minute is a act of criminal negligence, which would make almost every parent in America, you know, a felon. And but just because on that one instance, something bad happened, it, it, you can't look at the result and decide whether it was negligent because of the result. This exchange regarding the lawful manner issue really got my attention. This time, it's Justice Mike Boggs weighing in. I thought you just said in response to the chief's question that under the circumstances here, riding in a car asleep with a gun in your lap pointed forward with your hand positioned in a, in a, in a spot where it startled, you could pull the trigger and you fell asleep is a criminally negligent act. It is reckless conduct and can, and at that point with no one being shot, that individual could be stopped, arrested and charged with and convicted of a felony. That is, I agree with that, Your Honor. Yes. Okay. Wow. Yes. That's Bog saying a thoroughly unconvincing, okay. And Nami is saying, wow. It sure sounds like they find the state's position hard to swallow. The court's 97-page opinion comes out on June 30th, and it's unanimous. The justices rule McBurney should have given the jury the misdemeanor involuntary manslaughter charge. And because of the error, Tex gets a new trial. Justice Boggs writes the opinion. He notes there was testimony Tex fired the revolver as a result of being startled awake. And there was testimony that he suffered from a sleep disorder that could produce involuntary movements when he was suddenly awakened. Boggs writes, and I quote, From this evidence, the jury could have concluded that the revolver was not deliberately or intentionally fired, but rather, as McIver suggests, discharged as a result of his being startled awake, reflexively or involuntarily clutching at the bag, holding the firearm, and inadvertently contacting the trigger. Boggs doesn't hold back what he thinks of the case. It's really quite something. Here's one of Texas lawyers, Amanda Clark Palmer, reading a revealing passage from the opinion. Here, we cannot say that the error was harmless because the evidence of McGyver's guilt of aggravated assault and felony murder was not overwhelming or even strong, 
and the evidence of criminal intent was disputed and circumstantial. Indeed, the state's evidence of intent was weak, as no witness testified to any disagreement or quarrel between McIver and Diane, and many witnesses testified that they were very much in love. The state's evidence largely focused on a possible financial motive for McIver to murder Diane, but as McIver notes, the evidence connecting that alleged motive to any actions that McIver took to intentionally kill his wife was thin. The state's murder theory that McIver intentionally shot his wife in the back in a moving car with her best friend as a witness through a thin plastic bag and through the back of a seat that could have diverted the bullet while aiming so low as to potentially miss any vital organs is supported only by some circumstantial evidence and conjecture. To the contrary, the circumstances of the shooting suggest a lack of any preparation or planning. Indeed, the only witness to the fatal shooting testified that shortly before asking for his gun, McIver had fallen asleep in the back seat and that he appeared to have fallen asleep again after that, an unlikely action for someone intending to commit a murder. That was really something, huh? And Boggs goes on to write that the prosecution argued to the jury, without citing any particular evidence, that Tex initially planned to murder Diane earlier at the ranch. But he was prevented from doing so because Danny Joe was present. So he goes to plan B, killer in the SUV. Here's Amanda Clark Palmer again, reading another passage of the opinion. But, once again, the evidence presented by the state provides little, if any, support for this theory. If McIver intended to fatally shoot Diane, why would he do it in the presence of Carter? And why would he do it in Midtown Atlanta, within a few miles of several major hospitals, instead of on a rural interstate, far from any medical aid? Justice Boggs also writes this. Of the evidence that Tex gave varying statements to people at the hospital, the police, and others about what happened, and that some hospital personnel thought Tex was not grieving appropriately, that lent support to the state's murder theory. Boggs then writes, but not much. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. It's important to know that Tex is still in prison because his influencing a witness conviction stands. That brought him a five-year sentence. But on the day the court released its opinion, he had just over 60 days left to serve. Here's attorney Bruce Harvey's reaction to the decision. My first reaction was relief that the Georgia Supreme Court did what I believe to be the right thing. And of course, the next reaction was happiness for for Tex, um, a unjust conviction being overturned, and a, a window to freedom uh, so he can live the rest of his life um, free from the confines of a Georgia state prison uh, that he unjustly had been sentenced to. Here's Amanda Clark Palmer. It was really gratifying for them to pick up on what we had been arguing all along, which was that the evidence that the state introduced at trial 
you know, far from showing he had a motive to kill Diane, actually showed the exact opposite. It really showed that they were in love. I mean, every witness said they were like two teenagers in love, no fighting, no infidelity, you know, no discord or uh, any disharmony in their relationship, no financial motive. I mean, I still feel strongly that the evidence that came in about their finances showed that Tex would not have wanted anything to happen to Diane because he needed her cash flow that was coming in every month. Clark Palmer says when she read the conviction was reversed, she immediately called her law partner, Don Samuel, and told him they'd won. He was on the road driving back from a hearing in North Carolina. He's like, you better not be kidding right now. And I was like, I swear to God, not kidding. And we were both just like, I can't believe it. But, you know, we, we thought it was the right result, clearly. And we thought it was what should happen. I just, you know, speaking for myself, I've gotten rather sort of cynical and pessimistic because of doing this job for 15 years and not always getting the result that I thought was right or deserved. So I, I wasn't holding my breath um, for the opinion to come out. And so I was just really jubilant and shocked and happy and relieved um, because this is one of the trials that has always just stuck with me and I've been rather bitter about losing it um, because Tex should not be in jail for the rest of his life. So just all good and happy emotions. As for Tex's reaction? I think it's okay to say that he was, even though this was the result he had been hoping for, I think he was still stunned um, and also relieved and very much looking forward to, okay, well, what happens next and when does it happen? He's, he is still fighting for vindication and he's never stopped loving Diane and talking about how much he loved her and cared about her and how he never would have done anything to hurt her. Harvey doesn't hold back his criticism on what happened and what didn't happen. Generally speaking, any, any charge that is applicable to the facts of the case should be given, and every, every judge knows that. And every judge knows that there doesn't need to be extensive evidence to justify a charge and that the jury should be given every legal option to make their decision about the facts in the case and, and what verdict they should, be, uh, they should return. Uh, I, I think it's just emblematic of the fact that um, I think Texas conviction was just flatly enabled by McBurney. And this is just another example of that. Harvey says he can't speculate what might have happened if McBurney had given the misdemeanor involuntary manslaughter charge. I never know what a jury is going to do, will do, no matter what they say afterwards. We're not part of that deliberative process. And to, to think that you could speculate about what a jury might have done under different conditions. What, they, what might they have done if McBurney hadn't let the clown show go on the way it did? I mean, what a three-ring circus. We had 
a gurney wheeled into the courtroom. We had days and days of testimony about a non-existent second will that the Georgia Supreme Court excoriated the trial court and the prosecutor for introducing that without any, without any basis whatsoever. In the court's opinion, Justice Boggs writes, the state's evidence only shows the possibility of a second will, and it didn't present evidence that Tex knew anything about one. For this reason, Boggs writes, it was irrelevant, and any mention of it should not have been allowed during the trial, not in any future retrial either. Yeah, every, everything, every take that just segment this case and take the little segments of evidence that had um, just marginal value at best and prejudicial value that was over the top. And that's why I would continue to say that this was just a circus designed by the prosecution and enabled 100% by the trial court. My friend and colleague Bill Torpy recently wrote a column about the court's decision. In it, he called Tex the epitome of privilege and cluelessness. Harvey says he read the column. That was a great line, and it, and it holds, uh, I think it still holds true in, in, to a large extent. And people can be and often are their own worst enemies. Um, but one would think that someone with Tex's uh, intelligence background and background would um, not be the poster boy for that. I reached out to lead prosecutor Clint I go to trial. Rucker for his take on the ruling. He initially told me he'd sit down for an interview, but then he didn't return my emails or calls. He no longer works at the DA's office. He just so happens to now work at Don Samuels and Amanda Clark Palmer's law firm. They don't discuss the case. At least my colleague Bill Torpy ran Rucker down. Rucker told Bill that he stands by his work on the case and on the jury's decision to convict Tex. When asked about the Georgia Supreme Court opinion, which called the evidence of intent weak, Rucker said, quote, My theory about the motive was not weak to the jury. Harvey says he has no doubts about Tex's innocence. I am, I am absolutely unconditionally convinced that he is innocent and that's different from not guilty and that's different from not proven he is in i have absolutely no doubt and no hesitation to say that he is innocent of the charges uh, related to the death of his wife as for what happens next he completes the, the the sentence that he's currently serving and that's 60 days from now and that's the end of the case that, that's the end of it. There's no way, I think, that without the evidence that the court erroneously let in, that, they, that number one, the state should expend the resources to, to retry what I believe to be an obviously innocent person. And that would put an end to the case. That's what should happen. So once again, Tex stands innocent of the killing of his wife, at least in the eyes of the law. I know there are many listeners who think you can't just shoot and kill your wife, or your husband for that matter, and not face any consequences. 
So Tex is certainly guilty of something, even if it's first-degree cluelessness, like my friend Bill Torpy points out. But it does seem possible we're not ever going to know what else he may have been guilty of. After the court's decision was issued, a spokesman for District Attorney Fonnie Willis said the DA will evaluate the case and make a decision on how to proceed in the near future. So, of course, we'll let you know how that plays out. As always, thank you so very much for listening. Just in case you missed it, we recently had a special episode on the Justin Ross Harris hot car case, and, like I said earlier, Breakdown Season 9 is covering the special purpose grand jury in Fulton County that's investigating former President Trump and his allies for what happened here after the 2020 presidential election. We have already released three episodes, and the next one comes out on Monday. Please give them a listen. And stay safe and take care. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin.